before we uh, continue with uh, today's episode, um, just have two pieces of admin that we need to address from previous episodes. Uh, the first is corrections corner. In the last episode about Phil Pot, I I said that I understood that RAF Lookers was now uh, there was still flying going on there, uh, whereas I understand in. Um, actual fact in 2015 uh, RAF Lukers became an army base so while there may well be still some flying going on there it is predominantly an army base now rather than any form of private flying club uh, so that was a misunderstanding on my part so apologies um, not hugely critical to the overall story but I uh, think it's important to make sure we get our facts correct the other thing we want to address is we got our first email asking for asking a question of us. Uh, so thank you very much to Kenny in Aberdeen. Um, I'll, I'll read out his email. Um, it says, hi guys, really enjoying the podcast and looking forward to many more episodes. You maybe covered it and I missed it, but I wondered how Codner Williams and Philpott actually made their initial escape. Presumably they had to be present at the evening appeal in order to match the numbers, but do we know how they got back to the tunnel entrance, assuming they didn't just have an impromptu gymnastics session? Thanks, Kenny. Um, yeah, very valid, quite a very good question. Um, we kind of talked around it, but we didn't sort of explicitly explain how this happened. So on the day of the actual escape, there were actually three... Um, vaulting sessions that took place. This was uh, out of the ordinary. They usually only did one or two, but they did three. Uh, the first in the morning uh, was to, you know, clear out any last-minute sand, that sort of thing. Uh, just make sure everything was ready. Uh, in the second one in the afternoon, they left Codner down there in order to dig out the last couple of feet of the tunnel itself. Um, he was therefore down there for the evening appell. Now, the way that they covered uh, his absence in the appell, there's a number of ways that they used to do this. Uh, and, you know, they, they do sometimes feature these in the films themselves, so you can see it physically happening. Uh, one, one of them was for, uh, for another prisoner to be effectively counted twice. Uh, they might do this by running between the lines and popping up at two different points in the line. Or else, uh, they used to, they were required to stand in groups of five to make it easier to count, and they might just have one or two groups that were only groups of four. Uh, this, you know, if this was usually overlooked or not noticed, and therefore you could get away with having one person missing for one appeal at a time if you sort of cook the books or cook the numbers in this way. Uh, and then to get the, uh, to get Williams and Philpot down in the evening they did one last vaulting session after evening appeal which is usually around about five o'clock so they did one more to get them down to be ready for a six o'clock uh, breakout so they did one last with uh, i think i mentioned the new zealander Mackay. Uh, they went down with him uh, williams and philpot went into the tunnel and Mackay covered over the entrance and went back with the vaulting horse afterwards so they did a short evening uh, vaulting session in order to get the last two escapers into the tunnel ready to make their break for six o'clock. Thank you, Dave, for keeping us honest. Um, enjoy this week's podcast, everybody. He, he says that he carried with him three passport photographs, 700 francs and automatic pistol, which start, sounds like the start of a very bad joke or a great weekend. <laughs>
Welcome to For You The War Is Over, a podcast in which we, look in every episode, we look at uh, different Second World War, Prisoner of War uh, escape efforts, um, presented to you by me, Dave, the history nerd. And me, Dave, the tech geek. Uh, today we're going to be looking at the story of Wing Commander Whitney Willard Strait, which is another very strong name, very by the way. Very strong name, yep. Um, Dave, please, what can you tell us about this um, ab- about this gentleman and, and his escape story? So, yeah, Wh- Whitney Strait's a really interesting guy, actually. Um, he was born in New York, but at some stage in his life made his way over to the UK. Okay. Um, he flew in the RAF uh, for 242 Squadron, which was a fight squadron so he was a fighter pilot ah nice yeah so very very um an exciting job to have but uh, entirely in keeping with his uh, lifestyle actually because uh, he was a very famous pre-war racing driver <laughs> so this is pre-f1 um, right. so my my knowledge of f1 history is not amazing so apologies if there are any F1 aficionados who are <laughs> sitting there screaming at their internet connection at this podcast, um, correcting what I'm about to say. However, um, as I understand it, F1, as we now know it, uh, started as a post-war thing, whereby it became a World Series, in, in essence, a world... A competition that still is to this day. Yeah. However, that didn't mean that doesn't mean that Grand Prix don't predate uh, the concept of Grand Prix and what we still know as a Grand Prix predates F1. And so I think I'm right in saying that the first Monaco Grand Prix was Grand Prix was in the late uh, 1920s, 1929, I think it was. And so these races existed before it became a worldwide competition, ah. is which is what F1 is. Right. Okay. Um, however, the Grand Prix existed prior to that and prior to the war and so Whitney Strait was actually a Grand Prix racer uh enjoyed speed um, I was gonna say so basically he just liked fast vehicles then. <laughs> yes exactly and so in in many ways he was born to be a fighter pilot so yeah really interesting guy and was actually a little bit of a celebrity and I, su- I suppose if I'm brutally honest this is kind of like Lewis Hamilton nowadays becoming <laughs> you know, a prisoner of war and ending up escaping and, you know, lived a fast life and all this sort of stuff. Like, really interesting guy. And actually, he has quite an interesting escape as well. Not just because he had an escape. And in my mind, all escapes are fascinating. Okay. <laughs> um, but uh, he, he kind of, his escape was, I wouldn't say unique as such. Well, every escape is unique. His escape was interesting in that it wasn't from a camp. It was uh, it was from captivity, but it ah, wasn't okay. from a prisoner war camp as we know it. Right, and in actual fact, that wasn't particularly uncommon. Uh, escapes from camps were across the entirety of the war in the minority. It was a significant minority, but it was in the minority. The majority of scamps, uh, escapes did not take place in camps. Ah, okay. And so, in some ways, uh, as as we go on through this, I kind of want to start touching upon different aspects of the escape experience because it's not all identical it's not all from a camp it's not all by tunnel and so uh, i thought whitney Strait would be a great guy to look at yeah to um, look at how his escape took place i mean because for me when you say escapes i just assume you know from from prisoner of war camps from through as we've already done before digging tunnels underneath the ground and for other methods like that so yeah um so uh, as we always do we look first at their um at their service and capture yeah 
uh, as I say, he was in 242 Squadron of the RAF, a uh, fighter squadron, and uh, he was on anti-shipping patrol off the French coast. Okay. Uh, so um, he was operating between Le, Le Havre and Ficomp. Please don't judge us on any of our yeah, pronunciations I, on this I, podcast. Ap- apologies now for the absolute butchery I'm about to take, <laughs> about to inflict upon the French language, but I think that is correct. And yeah, he was so he was operating between those two locations, which I believe uh, are ports on the north coast of France. And uh, he was shot down by enemy surface craft uh, while attacking another aircraft, uh, where significant damage was done to his controls and propeller. Um, and so the engine basically stopped over land, and he crashed into a small field. Now, what what's interesting at this stage is. Um, well, actually, first of all, upon getting out safely from his plane, he, um, you were, you were expected. Um, so a captured plane uh, contained a lot of information for right. the enemy, and so you were expected to try and destroy your plane as much as possible. Okay, this possibly answers questions I was about to ask you. Feel free to ask away. Uh, well, just I mean, I feel like I'm stepping slightly ahead of, of no, no, where you're about ahead. to go in the report, but it says here that um, when it says from what I've seen in the report that. The aircraft did not catch fire when it crashed and when it landed. So, um, because he'd landed in the field, he borrowed some matches from a peasant who was working in the field and then tried to set the airplane on fire. Yes. Yeah. Which is... Actually, fairly standard practice. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's incredible to me on a couple of levels in that, one, he would just casually go up to someone and ask them, excuse me, can I borrow some matches because I need to set my plane on fire? And B, (laughs) that he would actually just set his plane on fire. Yeah, so it it was deemed better to have a destroyed plane, right, than to leave it. Because although it wasn't necessarily possible to destroy the entirety of the plane, yeah, you were expected to at least try. And so yeah, he went up to a peasant and asked <laughs> for matches. Um, but what what's also interesting, and this this is in contrast to the escapes that we've covered so far, is that in actual fact he initially. Uh, attempted to evade capture so I, th- I think it's worth at this stage sort of clarifying the difference between an escape and evasion okay the, the two are uh sometimes confused um but in, in essence an evasion was and it, it seems blindingly obvious when it's explained but an evasion was where you were never captured at any stage yeah an escape no matter how long or short you were in captivity was deemed an escape if you had been in captivity again no matter how long or short so it was encouraged that you were to attempt evasion first you were not encouraged to be captured and then try and escape which seems really obvious you know that makes sense but there is there is a difference and um so he actually attempted an evasion first and he he actually talks later about uh following advice from a lecture that he had attended Ah. and so that is likely the source where he decided to attempt an evasion okay um so he, he says that he carried with him three passport photographs 700 francs and an automatic pistol which start sounds like the start of a very bad joke or a great weekend <laughs> um, <laughs> uh so yeah he he but he he eventually he got rid of his uniform jacket and uh bought a cap for 30 francs which sounds like you know deck chairs off the titanic levels of 
um, disguise, yeah. but, uh, <laughs> you know, token gesture. Quick, let me just put a hat on. <laughs> yeah, it's, exactly. It's some some sort of child's cartoon <laughs> um, disguise, you know, fake nose and a pair of glasses. I was going to say, one step up from a fake nose and glasses. <laughs> exactly. Um, but yeah, so he, he did attempt uh, to find some disguise, and uh, he made his way to a train station and climbed into a train and waited for for it to depart. However, <laughs> the compartment that he climbed into wasn't connected to the train, and so he basically sat in the compartment and watched the train disappear off with him. It's going to be one of the most gutting moments. You've successfully <laughs> evaded everyone. You've hidden yourself into a train compartment just to comedically watch it just leave and leave you behind on the tracks. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, I've, I've kind of got this almost Homer-esque <laughs> image in my head of, of him doing something really stupid and just kind of watching his failure disappear off oh, into the distance. God. Which is really harsh, given that this was a hugely successful guy. Like, yeah. we were talking about a very successful person. Um, hi, you know, highly educated, highly intelligent. Um, just didn't know how trains worked. Yeah, just apparently wasn't aware that his compartment wasn't connected to the train itself. So he he, he took to foot and um, started asking farmers for shelter, that sort of thing. And in actual fact, the first farmer that he came across uh, and asked for shelter um, was already hosting German troops and refused to take him in. Not that this particularly bothered Whitney Strait, who uh, just walked into the barn anyway and hit. Um <laughs> without the farmer's knowledge and even acknowledges the fact that during the night a number of Germans came in and out of the barn that he was sleeping in. Which has got to be just terrifying and, and, and really sort of ballsy from him to just sort of sleep in there anyway. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's it's high risk, but also high reward because it did work out for him. Um, and so he made, he made his way to the nearby train station at Baalbek the next... Uh, morning and bought himself a ticket with the aforementioned francs and boarded a train for Rouen um, intending to go to Paris um, what I, again it's, it's these little episodes that make it amusing at Rouen between trains he dis, he had some pocket change British oh British British coins. money which oh, is right, yeah, yeah. which would probably be a dead giveaway if he was dead searched. giveaway exactly uh, highly incriminating um, contraband <laughs> in occupied France at this stage and so he rid himself of these incriminating possessions by posting a letter through the German billets uh, the, um, into the letter boxes of the German billets there's two parts to this first of all he's getting rid of incriminating evidence but it's also a little bit of a way of mocking the enemy <laughs> by, by putting a British shilling in into a, into a German letter box yeah. during an occupation you are quite openly acknowledging the fact that you have passed you know a britain has gone by at some point they will discover that and realize that you know yeah a british person has been in their in their sort of midst or to be more accurate a member of the british services because well, yeah. uh, he was technically american but he was fighting uh in the british services right. at this okay. point i think that's correct anyway um <laughs> always with the technicalities i know i'm sorry so from there he went he went to paris by train and in Paris, he actually went immediately to the U.S. Embassy. So because he was a U.S. citizen, the USA at this stage weren't yet in the war. So this is July 1941, so it's still another five months before America actually joins the war. Right. Um, so we're nearly you know, nearly two years into the war. Um, 
not that anyone's ever accused the Americans of being Johnny come lately to this sort of thing. <laughs> um, however, you know, he made his way to the embassy, but the, the embassy was closed. And, there was, you know, there was no answer on the telephone when he called up. Um, I, I imagine potentially another gutting moment. Yeah, exactly. You know, you've kind of made your way to the capital in Paris thinking, great, you know, I'm technically not British. Sure, I'm a serviceman, but, you know... I'm technically neutral here. Yeah. I can probably get away with this. Um, so makes his way to the embassy and uh, it's shut. Superb. Uh, however, it does get better because uh, he went back uh, the next day and although the door was open this time, on the inside door there was a notice that said all inquiries should be addressed to the American embassy in Berlin. <laughs> Just, so just the place he wants to go. Yes, ex- exactly. I mean, the o- the obvious location that you'd want to be going while on the run from the German Gestapo is to Berlin. Yeah. Um, and so, do you reckon they'd have people there? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> just someone waiting there, yeah. you know, um, keeping an eye on the embassy. Um, and in actual fact, the report actually acknowledges that the embassy in Paris was being watched. Oh. So he was already taking a risk just turning up there. Yeah. O- o- although. There wasn't much that the embassy could do. He ended up actually uh, leaving the immediate vicinity, but ended up calling them and speaking in French and asking for a thousand francs to be brought to him by the embassy, essentially guaranteed by citizenship. Right. And so, which they which they did. So, although he was a British combatant in the sense that he was serving in the British services, he was definitely taking advantage of being a citizen of, of what at this stage was a neutral country. Um. And frankly, why not? Yeah. Um, I certainly don't hold that against them. No, no, not at all. Um, so, yeah, with his newfound uh, wealth, a thousand francs in I his mean, back pocket, although he seems to have burned through 700. I was going to say, he had 700 not long ago. Has and he, he bought a cat for 30 francs. And so, it does say that he stayed in a couple of hotels or, or at least a hotel or two. Yeah, but was it the Ritz? But, I mean, yeah, <laughs> so does that mean he's still got, like, around 1,500 francs with him now that he can just do whatever with? I, I, I don't know, but as I say, he seems to have burned through the cash fairly quickly. Um, however, he, he took a he took a train to Tours, um, and he had he had no um, he had no food ticket, so wasn't able to purchase any food at this stage. So yeah, he he was making his way for the demarcation line. Okay, question time. What is the demarcation line? That's a good question, Dave. Nice. <laughs> um, so after after France was occupied um, in nineteen forty. Mm-hmm. Um, there was, in essence, a, a a section of France that was wanted to maintain an element of independence, and so set up uh, what's called Vichy France, because the capital of the unoccupied part of France was in Vichy. Okay, and so it it is known as Vichy France, uh, but it was essentially an unoccupied part of France. So France was basically split in two. Oh. Uh, during the early parts of the occupation, they did eventually fully occupy France completely. Yeah, but for at least a couple of years, there was a um, unoccupied part of France, and there was a demarcation line between the two, whereby you had to cross the border, and it was guarded by German guards. Right. However, Vichy France was in league with the Germans, so it wasn't that if you made your way into Vichy France that you were now in unoccupied Europe. It wasn't occupied, but it was still not safe. Right. Uh, essentially, the Gestapo still had some influence there. 
security forces did operate there didn't necessarily mean that everyone in Vichy France was a supporter of Vichy France, yeah. but it did mean that um, you weren't yet safe, shall we say. Right. I mean, that, that's mad to me that they make that demarcation line, but then still would be in league with them. But I guess they may not have had much of a choice. They didn't, yeah. essentially. Um, and it was headed up by a German, uh, sorry, a French general, Philippe Pétain, uh, who was a war hero from the First World War. Marshal Pétain uh, was a war hero from the First World War. He was known as the Lion of Verdun, so uh, had fought at Verdun, uh, one of the major battles of the First World War. And in, in essence, uh, one... I'm, I'm, right, I'm not defending him as such, but he was, <laughs> okay. he was effectively trying to protect France from the worst excesses of occupation okay but he was viewed as a traitor by right. many in doing so and is still very much viewed as a traitor in doing really? so even even with hindsight oh absolutely wow. yeah yeah um and i can i can see both sides and i think it's hard for us to kind of judge too harshly either way you yeah. know it's it's not our country that was occupied but equally i can see why people viewed him as a traitor um, however, in practice, from the perspective of escapes, um, it was safer in unoccupied France, in Vichy France, so you, crossing the demarcation line was a target. Okay. But it was not easy in and of itself to do, and even once you crossed the demarcation line, you weren't necessarily safe. Right. You, you certainly weren't home and dry, but uh, a number of them did make for the demarcation line. What was the phrase, um, you know, you weren't exactly home and dry? foreshadowing for how he crossed the line as it came across it so i mean they certainly did use geographical boundaries to help direct the demarcation line and he did cross a river so yes a river sure i think it says here and he crossed it at chenon so near tours on the river sure apparently And yeah, he. What I find, you know, this is entirely in keeping with the personality that I imagine this guy had, <laughs> was that he crossed in full view of the chateau at Chenonceau, the local German headquarters on the opposite bank. Just kind of did it. Just, yep. Yeah. Yep. I mean, who does that? <laughs> Seriously, who does that? Um, so yeah, and uh, having swum across. Um, casually dried off his clothes and uh well actually didn't really you know he wrung them out but didn't actually dry them off and said that he walked into a small village with his clothes still dripping and got accommodation at a hotel without producing an identity card there's a lot of hootspur in this guy i know and there's there's many occasions we've we've um there's there's a couple that we've passed through with sort of without saying that the phrase without producing an identity card or, Mm. or or without the need for papers comes up a lot and he's just like Oh, you know, the first one wouldn't let me, so I just kept trying until one let me without any paperwork. Yeah, he's totally winging it. Yeah, he's <laughs> going for it. Um, and I suppose that in some ways is inevitable. If you're if you're in attempting an evasion, you haven't had the time in a camp to prepare paperwork. Yeah, I mean, you have to think on your feet and 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 you know be yeah. able to be able to adapt to your situation. I mean, he certainly comes across as the sort of chancer that just tries things and gets away with it. Yeah. Well, yeah. 
um, you know, no questions were asked, and they got an excellent dinner without tickets. I mean, that's fantastic. I mean, he'd be if he was my friend today. I'd be both grateful to have him as a friend, and I'd also slightly hate him for his just sheer luck that he gets away with all of his bravado. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He is that guy. Yeah, um, that you know, he's just one of those annoying mates that locks out on everything. Yeah, um, and why not? Yeah, you know, frankly. Um, Took a bus to Chateauroux and then a train to Toulouse. So um, buying buying for himself a map of the Spanish frontier. So he's already thinking about where he's going now. You know, he is, he's he's crossed the demarcation line. He is heading south. He knows where he's looking to go and he's bought himself a map of Spain. What's interesting is this is actually, this became a very common route for both escapers and evaders throughout the war. Right. And probably by this stage, what, mid-1941, it was already a fairly established route that he was following. Now, he may not have known that he was following an established route at this stage, but he was uh, making his way down through occupied Europe towards Spain. There was actually two major routes that uh, you could take, which was essentially the Pyrenees separates France and Spain, and at either end is the coast, uh, whether it's the Bay of Biscay or over in the Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. Um you've got the coast and so inevitably the mountains of the Pyrenees get lower the nearer the coast you are. Yeah. Um, and so basically the two routes were you either went down the east side and headed to Barcelona or went down the west side and headed to Bilbao. Right, okay. And from there they would then head to Madrid and from Madrid they would head down to Gibraltar. Because of course Gibraltar is British territory. Yeah. Um, it wasn't unknown for them to head to Lisbon as well. So from Toulouse, he, he then got a train and uh, for the first time he was properly ID'd by yeah. Jean Darman, who asked for his papers. However, he managed to basically blag his way through it. <sighs> this guy. Uh, I know he's amazing. <laughs> I, lo- I love this guy. Um, and basically said he'd left his papers uh, at the last stop and that he would have, oh, I'm so sorry, sir, I'll have to go back and get them. Um, and the gendarme accepted this, so... It's the classic, oh, I've left my wallet in my other trousers line. Yes, you'll it? have to buy this round, <laughs> sir. <laughs> um, and, you know, again, fair play to him. He and blagged. they just let him get off the train at the next station to, to, to in order to go back and get his ID. Yeah, exactly. Um However, it, it had limited success because when he went into a cafe to get himself some food, um, another gendarme asked for his ID papers again and despite attempting to jump out of a first floor window, um, <laughs> he was uh, spotted and, and arrested. After that subtle exit? Yeah, yes, I know. I mean, you know, how did they not see or hear him getting out of the first floor window? Um, and so he was arrested and taken uh, to a cell uh, without food or water. Um, so although he wasn't technically captured by the Germans at this stage, because Vichy France was in league with Germany, um, he was deemed to be a prisoner of war. Right, okay. So yes, he, he, was, he was put into captivity and was told that he would be repatriated fairly soon. But he, he, he wasn't particularly thrilled at the prospect of being repatriated. Um, he wasn't against the idea. He was certainly willing to try. Um, but uh, it was too slow a process for him. Right, uh, okay. Fast cars, fast planes. Yeah. Uh, not I willing mean, to do a slow escape. Um, and so he did attempt an escape from uh, the... Uh, I think it's San Hippolyte uh, that it's called, uh, near Nimes. 
So yes, I mean, in essence, he tried to rush the the front gate. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is that's crazy. I mean, because he he did it by by meeting up with someone or bumping into someone that he'd known before, didn't he? Yeah, someone he'd previously known, and then we decided to attempt an escape together by rushing the front door of the camp with the help of Second Lieutenant Parkinson is and Parkinson? Squadron Leader oh, Gibbs. Right. And the fact that their their big plan is just bum rush the door and see what happens <laughs> that's fantastic yeah again he, he totally it's escape by the seat of your pants yeah. isn't it i mean <laughs> i don't get the impression this guy would be much of a planner no um you know he, he, he didn't really think things through he's, that a, much. he's a doer not a thinker yeah exactly exactly and uh, and again fair play to him he, he kind of he lives for the moment, uh, <laughs> to say the least. However, he was recaptured on this yeah. on this attempt, and so he basically went down the medical board route, uh, which was uh, relatively common. Actually, it's not unknown. There was uh, maybe a couple of hundred that were repatriated through medical boards, right? And so he attempted to do that because he'd received some injuries in Norway that had not properly healed, and. Uh, he managed to also get a certificate from a specialist in Nîmes, uh, which ear specialist, yes. Uh, yeah. So uh, uh, he managed to get a certificate from an ear specialist in Nîmes, uh, which certified that he was uh, medically unfit for further military service and there could be repatriated through the medical board. Yeah. Now, in his case, that may have been true. It wasn't always true. Or at least it wasn't always true of those who attempted to get medically repatriated. I mean, for his case, given the way he lives his life, it's very possible that he did not sit still and allow injuries to heal from previous... Yes, uh, I, 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 I could believe it of this guy. Um, however, there are certainly stories of people trying to use the medical board to get themselves repatriated when they were perfectly fighting fit. Yeah. Um, I, think, I think I'm right in saying it was... a a prisoner called Harry Elliott, uh, who was in Colditz, who um, went to extreme lengths of weight loss to try and get himself, to the point that he actually did make himself ill, uh, in order to try and get him uh, repatriated. However, interestingly, in order to exacerbate the weight loss, he actually ended, he would put sand, uh, little sandbags inside his pyjamas when he was first weighed. And then er, just, early on, so yeah. that he could exacerbate the weight loss by removing bags of sand ah. from his pajamas, so that it looked like he was losing more weight than he was. Right. Okay. Whitney Street actually um, was passed as being uh, medically unfit uh, for further military service, so he could have actually been repatriated. And initially, he made no further attempts to escape. Um, so he was due to be repatriated with forty-three others. Oh, yeah. Um. With, on a passport that had been organised by uh, US authorities in Marseille. However, two days before the expiry of the visa, the party were turned around at Perpignan. And they understood that the turn-back orders had been on the orders of the Vichy government. Right. Uh, right, right. So, again, you know, this being in league with Nazis, although not technically occupied, they were still in league with the Nazi government. Right, okay. And so, basically, I, th I think the two are connected. And so, having... Having not made any further attempts due to being due to be repatriated and that being postponed, although he was told not to try and escape, I don't think he really paid too much attention to it. Shock horror of I, what I know of this man's so I know, right? I mean, I can't believe this guy didn't follow orders. Um, 
and so he he successfully managed to get himself sent to a hospital uh, by cl- complaining of headaches and ear trouble, which he says was partly true. Um, um, yeah, which. Um, I have my suspicions. Uh, it sounds like he's trying to justify getting himself sent to a hospital yeah. more than anything. Um, so the, the hospital had barred windows and at night all rooms were locked. So essentially they had to escape during the day. Yeah, they had no choice. They had, they had no choice, but it, it was uh, guarded by guards and gendarmes uh, around the hospital itself in order to avoid this very thing uh, of escape. And so... Uh, they had to do it during the day, but in order to get out, they essentially had to confuse the guards. Yeah, um, it's fantastic, isn't it? <laughs> and I, yeah, I I love the part in the in. I'm sure you're about to say, but it's just that we confuse the guards is the official line in the report. Doesn't yes. it say how. Yeah, I no, would like to know how he did this. No, it, you know pulleys and levers. <laughs> who, who knows? Um, there's absolutely no detail given as to how uh, they confuse the guards and you know what they did to to do this but i mean uh, the classic throw a stone at a distance so they hear it and go what's that and just go and walk over there or i, I don't know they just literally i mean it works on metal gear solid yeah. <laughs> so you know why wouldn't it work in real life um and and yeah as daft as it sounds it was literally a matter of the guard turned left and straight turned right yeah and at, it's fantastic at the end of a corridor i mean it is so uncomplex yeah <laughs> Was the was the like I followed him quietly downstairs, and when he turned left, I turned right and ran. That is the entirety of his escape plan. Yes, and by good luck, we all managed to avoid the second guard inside the building. That is the extent of it. Like he is <laughs> totally and utterly flying by the seat of his pants on this one, which is entirely consistent with his the entirety of this report, his yeah. previous escape attempts, the character that comes out, as far as we can tell. Yeah, it from, seems exactly... I, it does not surprise me at all from what we learned through this that that is how he escaped. Yes, exactly. And so, you know, from there, he basically made his way down to uh, Gibraltar in the via the route that I mentioned previously and had been planning. And, uh, yeah, flew back from Gibraltar and was back... Almost a year to the day, actually. That's interesting. Um, he arrived back in the UK on the 25th of July, 1942, having been shot down on the 31st of July, 1941. So only six days shy of the full year wow. to the day from being shot down to returning all the way back to the UK. Um, so, yeah, you know, I, 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 I hadn't really come across straight that much prior to getting into escapes but it is a name that keeps cropping up because he seems to have been a bit of a character he had a bit of celebrity about him a name that would have been known by people in general at the time i mean and do you know whether after the war he carried on in his driving and stuff like that um or is that a silly question to ask he doesn't seem to have gone back to racing but he does seem to have had a fairly successful post-war career um Getting, uh, becoming managing director and chief executive of what became BOAC, which was a predecessor to the to BA, oh, uh, British okay. Airways, um, set <laughs> flying big fast vehicles again. Yes, exactly, and then uh, became president of Aviation Corporation of America, which went on to become Pan America. Oh, so he really did like planes. Yeah, he really did, and was also on the board of Rolls Royce. 
and um, cars. Yes, <laughs> entirely consistent. Um, this is fantastic. He ended up <laughs> suing the Russian government. Uh, what? Uh, because they basically copied the Rolls-Royce technology oh. for jet engines. <laughs> right. And so he ended up suing the Russian government for copyright infringement. This guy's amazing. This guy's fantastic. Uh, <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, he didn't go back to racing from what I can tell. Um, but he did go on to lead a, a fairly interesting post-war life. Uh, as you say, heavily involved in cars and planes from there on in and eventually died in 1979 in Fulham. Wow, that's a, a hell of a crazy life by the sounds of it. Yeah. Probably all led by his the, by the decision-making that got him out. Yes. It, yeah. You know, the same way he got in and out, he lived his life by the sounds of it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And after his escape in September 1942, so a couple of months after he got back, mm-hmm. uh, he had been promoted to Air Commodore and was sent to the Middle East and served in the Middle East. Right. Uh, in the theatre of war there. Ah, okay. Uh, presumably until the end of the war. Wow, what an interesting man. What yeah. an interesting way of escape. Not near, I mean, because in the, the couple we've looked at so far, incredibly well thought out, incredibly sort of well detailed. planned and yeah. detailed and... And everyone has sort of put lots of effort and energy into months of planning beforehand. Yeah. And this guy, obviously, because his situation is different, because, like, as you say, he was evading for most of it rather than escaping. Yeah. Completely the opposite. Yeah. Yeah. He just literally fly by the seat of his pants, make a decision. Oh, that didn't quite work out. Let's swim across a river. Let's. uh, Within sight of the German HQ. Within sight of the German HQ. Because why wouldn't you? (laughs) Oops, I've still got some British coins on me. Let's post them through these post boxes. Uh, you know, just to make the make the Germans aware of my position later on. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, let's confuse the guards and get out. It's it's incredible. Yeah. No, he 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 seems to have lived a fantastic life, and uh, his escape experience was entirely in keeping with the rest of his lifestyle and his personality. And I think it it for me it's interesting because it's you know you start seeing different types of escape appearing yeah. and. Actually, as the war progresses, different types of escape happen. So, mm-hmm. some some of the ones that we'll be moving on to in the in the upcoming episodes are from quite early on in the war, and intentionally so because I, you know I think we need to go back and kind of look at some of the early escape attempts because uh, there's some this, the early escapes sort of prior to the camp system being established and the security that came with that were very distinctive in their own right. Yeah. And were almost unique to a certain six-month period in which they took place. Wow. And so it'd be good to go back to that. But um, certainly with the likes of Strait, there is a certain a certain consistency with similar escapes that take place later in the war, okay. as his did in 41-42. Yeah. Um, but is different from what we initially perceive and immediately perceive as a typical escape. You know, we typically think of them as being in a camp, a tunnel, or some variation thereof of yeah. uh, wire-based escapes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yet his doesn't involve that at all. No. Um, the hospital slightly, but not really. It mostly just involves running away. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and t- taking his chances, really. Yeah. You know, he, he, he saw opportunities and he took it, and I like that. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. 
And it can again, it comes back to a certain type of personality attempted escape. He is well within that five percent. He's well within the one percent. Yeah. Um, of what? What did we say previously? Tenacious. Ten- yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, I, I, I think he's fascinating. Well, um, thank you very much for enlightening me and everyone else on more of Wing Commander Whitney Willard Strait. As again, still a very strong name. A, a name well fitting for the yeah. person I feel. <laughs> Okay, um, well, thank you, everybody, for listening to this week's episode. We hope you've enjoyed it. Um, If you have, um, please consider subscribing to the podcast. Uh, We can be found on Apple iTunes, um, Google Podcasts, or uh, basically any of your favourite podcast platforms. Or you can follow us on Twitter on at F-I-T-W-I-O. If you'd like to send us a more long-form message, then you can also email us at F-Y-T-W-I-O pod at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you.